really is a wonderful privilege to, to be here and be sharing this pulpit with so many of my friends, so many faithful preachers of the Word of God, pastors, theologians, spiritual leaders, and everybody on the schedule is, from my viewpoint, a dear friend and a treasure to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I'm really honored to be able to share this pulpit with them. Actually, at my age, I'm glad to be vertical, to be truthful. <laughs> I um, Normally in my life, I have a short time for preparation. I'm preparing for Sunday, Sunday morning message every week, very often a Sunday night message, maybe a chapel at the Master's University, maybe chapel at the Master's Seminary, maybe some other place that I'm going to be speaking. So I've learned to prepare a, a kind of a rapid speed um, ramp up to preaching. And I'm actually coming off two weeks of uh, rest, and I had way too much time to prepare. And so, pray for me that the Lord will help me edit. (laughs) But I want to begin by having you open your Bible to John chapter 4. And we're going to look at the Bible a lot, so I want it right there where you can see it. I want to read, to begin with, the, the account of the woman at the well in Samaria. And then we want to talk about a lot of Scripture. We've been saying that worship is built on, based on, informed by the Word of God, and so I want to load you up with pertinent portions of Scripture. Chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, reading from the New American Standard, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, so you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We'll leave the narrative at that point. This is the first announcement by the Lord Jesus in his ministry that he is the Messiah. He says that, verse 26, I who speak to you am he. He introduces himself as the Messiah in a discussion about worship. Even the Samaritan woman understood how foundational worship is to any relationship to God. She defined her desire for a relationship to God, a right relationship to God, as worship. She wanted to know where... And now she wondered if this might answer the question, who? Salvation is always a conversation about worship. We are the true circumcision, Philippians 3.3, who worship in the Spirit of God and have no confidence in the flesh. We are true worshipers. Now, before we say few things about the discussion of worship, I want to back up with you. Any consideration of worship has to go way back. How did this Samaritan woman, with only the Pentateuch in her religious background, the Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch, how did she know that a relationship with God was defined as worship? Well, she would know that because she would know Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7. Do you remember this commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. That's negative, but that lays out very clearly the responsibility of any human being before God to make certain that he or she never 
takes the name of the Lord in vain. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, familiar portion, verses 4 through 6, we read this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Pentateuch is clear. On the negative side, do not take the name of the Lord in vain, or you will not be guiltless. You will not be unpunished. Positive side, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this woman knew that a relationship with God is defined in how that individual looks at the divine being. I don't know that evangelical Christianity today defines salvation as worship. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. I don't know that there's a lot of fear of the Lord, nor am I convinced that there is a great occupation with loving the Lord, your God, with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And we know what it means to love the Lord, but what does it mean to take his name in vain? The name Yahweh appears 7,000 times in the Old Testament. Everybody knew that that was the name. And since God was so explicit to say, do not take the name in vain, that name which was so familiar and so often on their lips, even if coded in a different direction for the sake of honoring his holiness, was to be used only in the most serious ways. What do you mean, don't take the name of the Lord in vain? Well, let's talk about some possible significance that that could have. First, listen to Leviticus 24, 15, and 16. If anyone curses God, then he shall bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So one way of taking the Lord's name in vain is to blaspheme the name. What does that mean? That means to accuse God of any evil, any ignorance, any incompetence, any impotence, or anything that is less than who he truly is. To declare that God is not who he reveals himself to be. That is a form of cursing God. And that is normally done because people are bothered by the biblical revelation of God. 
So they would like to determine that God is not nearly as harsh about sins and immorality as some things in the Bible may appear to make him sound. So they, they, they want to say that God is more tolerant of sin. Or they want to say that God really can't possibly know the future because if he knew the future, he'd do something about it before we get into this mess. So he either doesn't know the future or he doesn't have the power to change the future. All these are forms of blaspheming God, not overtly, but covertly. Leviticus 19 adds another way that the name of the Lord can be taken in vain. You shall not swear falsely by my name as to profane the name of the Lord your God. I am holy. So you don't, in trying to convince someone of something that is false, swear by the name of God. So they think you're telling the truth because you wouldn't put yourself in such a position before God. It's like telling a lie and the, then saying, this is true, so help me God. That is taking the, the Lord's name in vain. There's another way that the Lord's name is taken in vain. There are many more than I'll give you, but I'm suggesting a few. And that is to make the false claim that you have heard from God and speak for him when you haven't and you don't. Turn to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. Some familiar words I know, starting at verse 15. Jeremiah 23, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I'm going to feed them wormwood, make them drink poisonous water, For from the prophets of Jerusalem, pollution has gone forth into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say calamity will not come upon you. But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath, even a whirling tempest that will swirl down on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. In the last days, you will clearly understand it. I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. If they had stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? They're saying they heard from me and I said certain things. They didn't hear from me, and I didn't say those things. They're offering a peaceful message. They're stripping out the offensive part of the message. They're saying everything is going to be fine. Calamity will not come on you. We hear this so commonly today. God loves you. He just wants you to be happy and successful and fulfilled. And this is supposed to be the message from God. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. 
Another way you take the Lord's name in vain is to worship the Lord in any way that diminishes his glory. Listen to Leviticus 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy things which they dedicate to me so as not to profane my holy name. I am the Lord. That person shall be cut off. A warning to Aaron, to the priests, that how they handled the holy things that were part and parcel of God's prescribed worship was a serious issue. How they handled holy things was a serious enough issue that if they profaned his holy name by deviating from the prescription that he gave them, they would be executed. This is Old Testament priests handling physical things. How much more frightening would be the indictment on one who handled the Word of God? In Isaiah chapter 1, the prophet Isaiah speaks to the issue of Israel's sinful worship. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, verse 11, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offering of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Now remember, God had prescribed them all and told the people of Israel to observe them. And yet they became a burden to him. He was weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I don't think you want to call somebody into worship who hasn't been washed who hasn't been cleansed. Even if they're following a certain prescription from Scripture, if their hands are covered with blood, speaking of sin, they need to be washed. They need salvation. I don't think it does unbelievers any favor to welcome them into worship. 
they cannot worship a God they do not know, do not love. Prophet Amos in chapter 5 said, stop your songs. Your hearts aren't right. Stop your songs. I don't want to see your festivals. I don't want your prayers. I don't want your offerings. I don't want the animal sacrifices. I don't even want your music. Your hearts aren't right. The Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi with indictment, chapter 1 of Malachi. That is biting into the apostasy of Israel again, as Malachi says these familiar words. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you in that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised? You're bringing an offering that is less than the best. And later in that chapter, he says, you offer not the best of your lambs or the best of your animals, but the least. You take the name of the Lord in vain any time, any time you diminish his holy glory, and particularly in an act of supposed worship. What does in vain mean? Well, basically, it means for nothing, right? For nothing. So to take the Lord's name in vain would be to cheapen it to reduce it to insignificance, to reduce it to nothing, to to make it frivolous, to make it shallow, to make it superficial, to empty it of its glory. Don't ever do anything that diminishes the glory of God while naming Him. Of course you don't blaspheme and curse him. Of course you don't use his name to swear falsely. Of course you don't make false claims to having heard from God now speak for him when that's not true. But neither do you in your worship do anything that diminishes his glory. Don't speak of him or sing of him or think of him in any way that robs him of his glory. Don't empty his name. Don't use his name in cheap forms of entertainment and emotional manipulation. Anyone who empties his glorious name in any way by having a divided heart, should remember the words of Psalm 24. If you want to enter the holy hill and worship, you come before God, you must have clean hands and a pure heart. And if you don't, you are in grave danger. I think it's safe to say nothing is more glorious than worship, the worship of God's people. And nothing is more dangerous than false worship. Everyone who cheapens, empties, diminishes the holy name of God, everyone who expresses only external ceremonial 
formal or informal forms of worship without having been washed and sanctified and without having clean hands and a pure heart has taken the name of the Lord in vain and is not guiltless. 1563, the Heidelberg Confession said, We must see the holy name of God only with fear and reverence so that we may rightly confess him, call on him, and praise him in all our words and works, end quote. This is what is missing today, sadly, tragically missing, is this rich, deep, thorough truth concerning God. We take our Lord's name in vain when we think less of him, when we know less of him, when we love him less, we take his name in vain. Reality is, folks, we all fall short, don't we? I know Jesus clarified the Ten Commandments by saying if you've committed adultery in your heart, it's just the same as breaking the commandment. If you hate, it's just the same as breaking the commandment to murder. And we have all, honestly, we have all violated the command, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. You will not be guiltless. Can I say it this way? You can thank the Lord that Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for all our corrupt worship. When you come into the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus indicts that generation's leader, leadership in Israel. It's a familiar portion of Scripture, Matthew chapter 15 and verse 7. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's Isaiah 29. Verse 9, in vain do they worship me. Oh, there it is. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain, but in vain they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Whoa. Substituting any human knowledge for the word of God is taking the Lord's name in vain in worship. This was such an awesome burden to bear for the Reformers that they came up with a term that you should be familiar with. It's the regulative principle. You've heard of that. The regulative principle. I'll just give you John Calvin's definition of that. God, 
disapproves of all modes of worship not explicitly sanctioned in Scripture. John Calvin, let me say it again. God disapproves of all modes of worship not explicitly sanctioned in Scripture. Therefore, true worship rises out of a knowledge of Scripture, right? The regulative principle simply says, worship the way God wants to be worshipped. Scripture is the revealed will of God. He has told us in His Word how He wants to be worshipped, how He deserves to be worshipped. Worship Him that way. So then what becomes so compelling is, look, if worship is dangerous when it's false, if we're all living in some kind of sin, if we're diminishing the glory of God in some kind of superficial worship, if we're in danger of, even as believers, chastisement, and we can remedy that by doing what God wants us to do in worship, then all we would ask is, where do I find that? And it's revealed in Scripture. That's why I said earlier in the Q&A today that people playing instruments are not the worship leader. The worship leader is the preacher. Because he is giving people the revelation of God, an understanding of the revelation of God, so that they know how God desires to be worshipped. I couldn't care less what an unbeliever wants in a church service. That is the last thing that I could care about. Do you remember I did an interview with Ben Shapiro? He said to me, does it bother you that you offend people? I said, no. I offend people on purpose. I, I don't want to personally offend them by a lack of love or care or kindness or compassion. But I'm sorry, this word from God is offensive. Worship me correctly or die. Romans 1 basically consigns the human race to hell because when they knew God, they failed to worship Him. That brings about damnation. The history of the church has corrupted worship in a formal way, external, ceremonial, emptying God of the love of the heart that He deserves. The contemporary church has taken the name of the Lord in vain with its often informal worship, more psychological, sociological. And put itself in jeopardy, I think. 
lot of fake worship. I will give you just a definition. True worship is any and every expression of obedience, praise, honor, adoration, and gratitude offered to the true God by a regenerate soul who knows the truth about God and loves him. The Psalms are the hymns of the redeemed. They're not the hymns of the unredeemed. They're the hymns of the redeemed. Psalm 45.1 expresses worship as my heart bubbling over. And as Vodi pointed out to us in the last session, in the New Testament, we speak to ourselves. This is not an evangelistic tool. We speak to ourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in our heart to the Lord. Our music is to the Lord. It's not music from the stage to the audience. It's music from the saints to the Lord. New Testament is full of doxology, and when you get to the book of Revelation, you get a glimpse of heaven, chapter 4, 5, 11, 14, 15, 19, 22 in Revelation. Heaven is just exploding with praise and worship. I think we need to remind this contemporary church that music is not worship. Music is poetry with melody. Music is music. Uh, in and of itself, it is not worship. And it's, it's a little bit disturbing to hear people say, well, you preach so long, how is there any time for worship? And my answer would be, your sermons are so short, how does anybody know what worship is? But I don't want to say like things like that or I'll get in trouble on the internet. <laughs> so um, that was just a few thoughts and now I'll get to my text. <laughs> so turn to John 4. Obviously we just can't dig down into this, but I do want to show you a few things from this incredible text. You know the story, woman at the well. And in these verses from verse 20 to 24, we have some of the key elements of worship. Number one, the author and initiator of worship. The author and initiator of worship. So important. This is the heart of everything. Verse 23, an hour is coming, now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Listen to this. For such people, true worshipers, true worshipers, who worship in spirit and truth, the Father seeks to be his worshiper. Who is the source and initiator of worship? Such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. 
John 6, 44, Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father, what? Draws him. The Father. Cody said some things about that great reality. It doesn't say... For such people, the creator seeks to be his worshipers. God is the creator, but that doesn't come across with near the richness that identifying him as a father does. And by the way, he's identified his father three times in those few verses there. This is the foundation of all truth regarding God. All truth regarding God. This is the heart of all understanding of salvation. This is the heart of the gospel. It is that God is a father. That is, God is eternally in a love relationship with other persons. This is not Allah in attempting to strike a blow against Christianity. Islam says, Allah is one. He neither begets nor is he begotten. Thank you very much. Therefore, Allah is not the true God. The true God begets and is begotten. The true God can love because the true God is three persons in one. There cannot be an attribute of love in a single deity who eternally has only lived with himself. He may at some point create, but he cannot create for a relationship because there's nothing in his nature that requires that. And that is why in Islam, there is no such thing as love from God. We have a God who is first and foremost the Father. The father who loves his son and is loved by his son. The father who loved the nation, Israel. Father who, out of love, chose Israel. A father who, out of love, continues to choose his own eternal family. God is, the true God is set apart from every other false deity. That is why it's so foundational for us in the New Testament to hear that God so loved the world. That's what's behind everything. God's love for the world, but not just his love for the world, his love for his own son. We see this magnificently in the Gospel of John where you are. If you look just a couple of things quickly over to chapter 14, And verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened? 
that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. The whole plan of salvation is based on the Father loving the Son, and through the Son and the Spirit, loving a redeemed humanity that He brings to glory so that forever He can lavish them with His own love and be loved by them. 17th chapter of John, verse 23 Well, verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Isn't that amazing? This is a picture of the Trinity. There is oneness, there is unity, and yet there are persons. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Is that incredible? I mean, the whole purpose of salvation is so that this Father, who by nature is love and has eternally expressed that love in the Trinity, is able to extend that love beyond the persons of the Trinity to unworthy sinners. That love is so lavish that if he loses a coin, like in Luke 15, he goes to find the coin symbolizing a lost and found soul, and there's a party in heaven. He loses a sheep and finds a sheep. There's a party in heaven. Then the story of the prodigal, the father running, throwing his arms around the pig-stinking head of that wretched son, kissing him all over the place and loving him into his wealth. John 5.23, so that all will know the son as they will honor the Son as they honor the Father. He who doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father. When we talk about God and when we worship God, we go to Him as our Father, not a distant Creator, but our Father. And not only that, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is one with His Son. This is salvation. You have been brought into a loving relationship with God the Father through the work of the Son redemptively and through the work of the Spirit in regeneration. Look at that word seeks in John 4. The Father seeks. Luke 19.10, the Son comes to seek and to save that which is lost. The Father seeks, zeteo, to crave, to strive after. This is that efficacious seeking as God craves the fellowship of the elect, redeemed humanity, not only for the fulfillment of his own love, but for the love of the Son to whom he gives those he loves as love gifts. John 17, Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Thank you, Father, for the ones you give to me. The whole redemptive plan is the Father 
loving the Son and seeking a bride for the Son who can love the Son everlastingly. That's the reason for redemption. It's not that we're so impressive. We're not. Redemption is not essentially for us. It is for us to be transformed into the bride of Christ so the Father can express his love lavishly to the Son by giving the Son an eternal worshiping bride. It's all about relationships. Father is gathering us. In Ephesians 1, you might not have thought of it in this sense, but listen now to these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Then this, in love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. The whole point is that God loves. God is love. That love existed eternally in the Trinity and was extended through the work of redemption to unworthy sinners who are given to the Son as a bride who will forever praise and glorify Him. That's the source of worship. The initiator is the Father. Quickly, the object of worship. Oh, same. You worship the Father. Verse 21. The woman says, where is it? In this mountain or Jerusalem where you worship the Father? Verse 24 talks about worshiping Him. Verse 23, the Father seeks to be worshipers of Him. God has drawn us to Himself to worship Him. He is not only a Father, just quickly, He is a Spirit, verse 24. Really important. Colossians 1.15, he's the invisible God. As Stephen said in Acts 7, the Most High doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and the earth the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand that made all these things? Verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, the woman says, Mount Gerizim. You people, the Jews, say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Back in 722, of course, when the northern kingdom was conquered by Sargon the Assyrian and all those people were taken away and only ones left in the north were the poor, and then they intermarried with pagans and idolatrous people and they constituted the mixed 
hybrid group known as the Samaritans, they developed their own kind of worship. They, they developed it at Mount Gerizim. And they did that essentially because that was close to the, to the place of Shechem. They developed a kind of uh, simple approach to worship based on what they knew from the Pentateuch and that alone. None of the history books or the books of literature or prophets. They had their own kind of worship. It was ignorant. And so she says, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim. You say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And by the way, 125 B.C., John Hyrcanus had completely obliterated the Samaritan temple on Gerizim. It had already had a death blow. 70 A.D., the temple of Jerusalem would be crushed and smashed. So, where do we go? Jerusalem's still standing. Ours is in ruins. I want to worship. I know a relationship with God is about worship. Where do I go to worship? And with that, we are introduced to the location of worship. Oh, is it in this mountain or Jerusalem? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Even the legitimate Old Testament worship that was associated with the temple, now apostatized, was going to disappear in favor of a kind of spiritual worship that had always been God's will throughout the whole Old Testament. But there were reasons to have the convocations in Jerusalem around the great temple there if it was treated the way God had intended it to be treated as a symbol of his glory and his presence. But the time was fast coming, he says, when you're not going to worship in this mountain or in Jerusalem. Go down to verse 24. Why? God is a spirit. God is a spirit. That's important because that means he's everywhere, right? God is a spirit. He is the invisible spirit. This is not a geographical issue. Worship is not tied to a place. In fact, in the New Testament, just quickly, the new temple is the living temple of the church, right? We are a holy priesthood, 1 Peter 2, 5. We are the temple of the living God, Ephesians tells us. God in his spirit lives within us. And the new temple is any gathering of the people of God. When we come together, we constitute the true new covenant temple. In verse 22, he says, you worship what you do not know. You have uh, zeal. You lack the full revelation. We worship what we know. We have the revelation. We don't have the zeal. It's as if he said to them, you have the heat without the light. We have the light without the heat. But God wants to be worshipped, verse 23. Here's the nature of worship. Final point, the nature of worship in spirit and 
truth. And I think simply stated, that would be to say, in the human soul, from the heart, and with the truth, the knowledge of the true revelation that God has given in Scripture. Verse 24, those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's go back to where we started. It's wholehearted, whole-souled, loving worship of God in the fullness of the revelation that gives him all the glory he deserves. One of the greatest legacies that's been given to us in the musical part of our worship, which is just one aspect, is hymns. The more mature people are, the deeper they are in their knowledge of God, the deeper they are in their knowledge of Scripture, the more insistent they are on singing hymns. Because they are so theologically rich and theologically nuanced, to say nothing about being melodically beautiful, formidable, memorable. As your knowledge of God grows, as the deep knowledge of God begins to captivate your heart, trivial things fade away. And you will find that any church with a deep and rich, long-lasting understanding of the glory of God is going to sing that glory in the most rich, full manner possible. And that's inevitably going to lead them to hymns. Because they're not content, although occasionally it's good to reinforce, they're not content to just repeat something because it feels good. They have to give expression to the range of their understanding. It needs to be that the hymn writer is saying things that I understand, but he's saying them in a way that I could never say myself. I'm carried away, not by the experience of the music, but by the reality of its content. So Jesus had a conversation with a Samaritan woman, and even she knew that her relationship to God could be defined only by worship. God is the source. He seeks the worshipers. He is the object, the one who is Father, the one who is eternal Spirit. And while there are places where we assemble, the sphere of worship is life itself. Because God is everywhere, with us and in us. And the nature of worship from the human spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, pouring forth the love of the truth.
That's the worship the Father seeks. Father, thank you for seeking us. Thank you for craving a redeemed humanity whom you chose before the foundation of the world. In love, you predestined us. In love, you sent Christ to die for us. In love, you gave us your spirit so that he might shed love abroad in our hearts. And we might be marked by the fruit of the spirit, which is love. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And the purpose and point of knowing about you is so that we might love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Even when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us because you loved us. You loved us. You love us still in our unworthiness. We want to love you in your worthiness. Make us true worshipers. Forgive us for our sinful emptying of your glory when we have diminished it in any way in how we have spoken or thought or acted with relationship to you. May we ever live and speak and think to the praise of your glory. By the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.